Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your hosts. That's Gerhard Steuben. That's me. And that's Tyler Stanley. That's me. <laughs> Today we are discussing the hottest, most important subject of clerical celibacy. Before we get into it, what are we drinking today, Gerhard? So part of talking about clerical celibacy in the sort of patristic, late patristic, and early medieval era um, is the question of gender, and can you be a man without um, being a husband and a father? So we, like the soy boys we are, are drinking soy milk, um, because a lot of people would say that being a priest made you not a man or a nun made you not a woman. You were a third gender. You were a third type of thing. And so Tyler and, and that I, technical term for that third kind of thing is soy boy. It is soy boy. Yeah, it's you know trans transliterated from the Latin, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, Tyler and I, classic vegans, drinking our 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 emasculating froth. Mm-hmm. Yum. Yum. So Tyler, uh, what's what's been happening lately? Not much. Just reading about abstinence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my hot topic. My favorite topic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's surprising how much this still comes up, right? Like how much um, this is still a talking point. I guess it shouldn't be surprising since the largest Christian group in the world has a pretty strict priestly celibacy law, though Mm -hmm. even even in the Catholic Church, there's some exceptions. Yeah. And there's other more broadly kind of celibacy among the laity, among normal everyday members who aren't uh, ordained. Um, we have same-sex attracted people who yeah. are on what we call the side B, who would be same-sex attracted but believe that they is a sin to have sex with the same sex, so that they so they remain celibate. And there's a whole community about encouraging. And, uh, and helping one another and learning from one another about living a celibate life as a same-sex attracted person. And uh, also there's just general discussion about kind of how, especially in the West and in America, I say America because I, that's what I know, how obsessed we are with sex in our culture. I know a lot of Christians, thoughtful people are trying to encourage celibacy anyway. Um, clergy or not, just to say this is a viable option for, uh, and an encouraged, and as Paul would say, best option for uh, a believer is to live a celibate life. Yeah, um, and with sort of the now extremely prominent questions um, of like the nature of gender and gender fluidity and how that interacts with and doesn't necessarily um, completely overlap with the question of same-sex sexual activity, um, but even beyond that, there are questions of uh, the nature of gender, whether it's binary, whether it's fluid, whether there are multiple options. This is something that um, scholars of the medieval church um, especially um, talk about a lot, is did the medieval church have a non-binary understanding of gender? Um, did they have something like a gender fluidity? Did they just have a um, trinary, maybe a triple binary, like I mentioned earlier, with uh, male, female, and the religious, uh, meaning people in religious orders? So it's it's a surprisingly press like present and pressing uh, question that you know you don't expect to get out of some of these seemingly arcane historical questions yeah but today we're focusing specifically on the question of celibacy in the priesthood as gerhard said the catholic church today to this day still practices um and teaches that uh, priests cannot be married or engage in intercourse and so we want to look at the history of that and kind of see where did this originate what are uh what does the church have to say about this through the centuries? And Gerhard actually talked a little bit about this topic in his podcast uh, on the Reformation podcast 
that was your second part of your um, uh, Muslim-Christian relations episode, is that yes. right? Yes, it's one of the Muslim-Christian episodes. Yeah. I think it was the second part. Yeah, so uh, Gerhard was talking about that. I was listening to that episode, and I thought, hey, that's a hot topic, probably something that people would be interested in, so I thought it would be fun to discuss that here. So we'll be going a little bit past our early Christian patristic era dates into some of the later stuff because there's some important developments. Because, uh, like gender, according to many, the dates and boundaries of eras of the church are extremely fluid. <laughs> uh, the reformers thought they were following in the footsteps of the patristic writers, and the patristic writers can seem either very medieval or even very modern at times. Way to connect that back. Okay, so Tyler, uh, early church, what's up? What's that? What's happening? So in the early church, uh, best I can tell, the earliest kind of official statement we have from any section of the church is from uh, the Synod of Elvira. The Synod of Elvira in Spain. From their council, they put out their canons, just like most councils will put out their canons, just little statements or resolutions, decisions that they have made about the roles and positions of the church on various issues. This particular... Sin had dealt a lot with marriage and sexuality questions. So who can Christians marry? What who can bishops marry? And when can they marry? All that fun stuff. A big question that they addressed was who Christians can marry. And a lot of that was uh, they can't marry heretics. They can't marry pagans. Uh, they can't marry Jews. They need to marry within the faith. One interesting and fun statement they made was in Canon 15, it says... No matter the large number of girls, Christian maidens are by no means to be given in matrimony to pagans, lest youth, bursting forth in bloom, end in adultery of the soul. So we see here there is an issue facing the church, at least in Spain, I imagine throughout the Christian world, is that many women are converting to Christianity and they cannot marry anyone except for Christians, but there are no men for them to marry because they're all pagans or heretics or Jewish or what have you. So what are they to do? It seems that the church is turning to traditional New Testament Christian teaching that celibacy is a better way to live your life than to be married or to burn with passion. So we have this encouragement of celibacy for the church. And so the rest of this, the canons of this um, synod talk about celibacy for bishops. Canon 33 says, Bishops, presbyters, and deacons, and all other clerics having a position in the ministry are ordered to abstain completely from their wives and not to have children. Whoever, in fact, does this shall be expelled from the dignity of the clerical state. So... Married people could become priests, but once they're priests, they are, according to this council, ordered to uh, live a celibate life within marriage, have a spiritual marriage, which is not a new thing. Early in the church, we have in ascetic communities, Christian believers who are married, a man and a woman, who decide to abstain from sex in their relationship, and they believe that this relationship between them is a higher form of marriage. It's a spiritual marriage. It's not a physical one. And so this synod is saying that uh, that is the only acceptable marriage for uh, a priest in the church. Something that might be important to remember here, um, and this gave me some trouble starting out as I looked at these um, first millennium councils, is that we have a tendency to think of church councils in the big terms. We have a tend tendency to think in terms of the seven ecumenicals um, of Trent, and these all have really wide-ranging ambitions. But that isn't necessarily how we should think about the like councils like Elvira um, and some of the other minor councils that we're going to talk about a bit later on. A, a helpful way to think about um, the minor councils that are not First Nicaea or Constantinople or Chalcedon um, is to think of them in terms of like how um, other Episcopal type uh, 
communities function. So in the ACNA, the Anglican Church of North America, there's debate on whether or not women can be ordained to be priests. They decided in 2008 when they broke away from the Episcopal Church um, that they wouldn't make a firm decision on whether or not women can be priests. So what that was decided is that uh, each bishop over um, each specific area that he had authority over was able to make these sort of decisions. And so that in some places in the ACNA, women can be priests, and in some places they cannot be ordained to be priests. And so each sort of local area has its own realm of authority in which the canon law of the church is applicable, and it's not necessarily transferable to other areas in the church. And now for people coming out of a free church tradition, or even a Catholic sort of mindset, that might be kind of strange, um, because it seems like if the whole church should have one order. Um, and that is something you see pushed towards uh, in the ecumenical councils. Um, but as we're thinking about these local church councils, if you're in the uh, area of Elvira, this might be enforced on you. But if you're in Germany, or if you're in Italy, it wouldn't necessarily be seen to have um, authority over you. That's the things that happen in ecumenical councils. And so that's not a perfect analogy, but I think it is a helpful way of thinking about the relationship of these local councils to uh, the broader church. They're important because they show what a large group of people and a large part of the ecclesiastical hierarchy thinks and how they enforce their understanding of the church's laws. Um, and so they do have real weight in thinking about the ecumenical tradition of the church. Um, but you can't necessarily impose the canons of one place on another. And so let's think about the canons of this place. Some of the other canons. Let's see, uh, Canon 67 of Elvira. It is forbidden for a woman, whether baptized or a catechumen, to have anything to do with long-haired men or hairdressers. Any who do this shall be kept from communion. All right, sisters in Christ, stay away from me because I have <laughs> long hair. I sometimes have long hair if I don't go to the barbershop enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Canon 80 says it is forbidden for freedmen whose former masters are still alive to be promoted to the clergy. 81 says women shall not presume on their own without their husband's signatures to write to lay women who are baptized, nor shall they accept anyone's letters of peace addressed only to themselves. So there are some canon rules here that, for one thing, I don't think we should abide by and probably weren't binding on the rest of the Christian world at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's an important point, right? Like, you have these decisions being made that even at the own, at, in their own time um, can be shown to have not been followed in other places. And that has to do with sort of the church's self-understanding. Like, it would be later decided um, really soon after Elvira. Elvira is 308, right? Uh, I think there are some disputed dates, but I think generally it's 305. 305, got it. So about 20 years later, there would be a decision made that if a bishop uh, at Nicaea, one of the canons is that if a bishop excommunicates someone in their own diocese, that person can appeal to the broader church, um, but can't just leave the diocese and get, you know, re recommunicated, uh, flaunting the first bishop's decision that wasn't followed especially in the Arian controversy but the idea is that in order to preserve in order to preserve the church's unity and the church's faithfulness to Christ each area has to follow its own sort of canon law and even if that canon law is not correct it's better for the church to have some semblance of order which can be reviewed and um, then to just function basically as Baptists, as free church <laughs> people, where it's the wild, wild west. And if you're excommunicated for something really serious, if you're dropped from being a pastor for something like sexual abuse, you can just become a pastor somewhere else. Like the patristic model has some problems, but I think has less problems than what we have. Yeah. Which is why Baptists used to have, and some maybe still do it, letters of recommendation Gerhard just took a swig of that milk and made the funniest face like it was disgusting. <laughs> um, I haven't drank almond milk in a long time. Yeah, we, I lied earlier. It's not soy milk. We didn't have any soy milk, but it fit better. Yep. What was I saying? 
Oh, um, Baptists. Oh, yeah, Baptists used to have uh, letters of recommendation or letters of transfer so that if you were a member of a Baptist church and you wanted to move to another church, they would only accept your membership at the new church if the previous church gave a letter that said, yes, this is a member in good standing. There's no reason we didn't excommunicate them or anything. There's no reason they shouldn't be members of your church. Yeah. So So that's sort of how to think about uh, non-ecumenical councils like Elvira. And this is where we get a lot of our evidence for early priestly celibacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're moving on to, Gerhard already brought it up, the Council of Nicaea. This one is a little bit more serious because it is one of the ecumenical councils. And I think it should be noted that the canons are the reason a council meets. Uh, The Council of Nicaea didn't meet in order to write out the Nicene Creed. It was tacked on at the end. It was not the central thing. The canons are what matter to councils. So, Tyler, what's a canon, maybe, for listeners? Yeah, so a canon is like we just... we I read a few examples from Avira. It's it's a, it's essentially a, a rule or a statement on how the church is going to operate in its polity or ethics. It's kind of the general rule that members of the community are going to follow. And this uh, develops into canon law. Like, that's yeah. sort of the Catholic Church's codified set of the Church's canons. Yeah. Yeah, so um, these are rules that if you break, you can be punished by the... Usually a canon will give you the punishment for breaking this particular one. Back in Elvira, there was a, a canon that, that said that if a bishop were to commit adultery, they would be excommunicated and not even given last rites, which is interesting. So there is a, a rule, and then there is the discipline for breaking the rule. Now, in... Nicaea, we do have a canon that prohibits bishops, priests, and deacons from uh, living with the woman who is uh, anyone other than, what is it, their aunt, wife? I can just read it. It's pretty short. Yeah, read it. So, the Great Senate has stringently forbidden any bishop, presbyter, deacon, or any any one of the clergy, whatever, to have a sub-introductive dwelling with him, except only a mother, or sister, or aunt, or such persons only as are beyond all suspicion. A sub means basically just someone living with you, someone who's uh, who's come into, who's been brought into your house, right? Yeah. Um, but from the context, it's assumed that this is going to be a sexual uh, relationship. Well, see, a comment that I read on it, someone had assumed that it was just an unmarried woman hmm. or... So kind of like the Billy Graham role, don't even have the appearance. So oh, yeah, you, that makes sense. Yeah. Which I assume both are true for it. Like right. don't have... Don't have someone living with, like someone brought into your household. Other than these specific close family members that you would not be having sex with, right. presumably. So it it's trying to prevent sexual activity by, again, this is pretty serious, bishops, presbyters, deacons, or any of the clergy, whatever, which is actually far more... Uh, far-reaching than any church uh, decision today that I'm aware of. The Catholic Church allows some married priests, if you were already married beforehand. Deacons can be married in the Orthodox Church in the Catholic Church, too. I'm pretty sure, but I'm not positive. Okay. You all know we're not Catholic or Orthodox. We're Protestants, so if we get any of these things wrong about your tradition, just cancel us on Twitter. Yeah, just... just <laughs> Give us the hard button. Yep. Yeah, so this is pretty important. The canons of Nicaea are no joke. Yeah. Um, so... I would think of this as like the last sort of moment of the original classical era, and you move into high patristics after Nicaea. Mm. But this is like the funnel towards which all tradition, all of the early church's tradition is being pushed. Yeah. Now, there is an interesting note here that according to church historians from the fourth century, fifth century, Socrates and Sozomen both report stories of within the council, there was brought before the council the proposition to explicitly state that bishops, presbyters, priests, whether married or not, could not have sexual intercourse. And that proposition was struck down by those present at the council. 
There's some debate about whether that story was interjected later by the Persian tradition, which Gerhard will talk about in a second. But it should be known that uh, if this was real, true to the original council, then the council did not state that bishops could not have sex with their wives. So Nicaea is kind of a toss-up on whether it explicitly denounced sex within a bishop's uh, marriage. And even if that is a fabrication, um, which it's so hard, um, even in scholarship, to parse apart what's being argued by scholars for historical reasons and what's being argued for um, religious reasons, what's what's apology and what's history, um, and everybody falls sort of prey to that, and so it's not a dig on anyone. But even if it is a fabrication later, like uh, the sort of general Catholic academic consensus thinks, that still shows something I think really important. Um, if you don't believe that the ecumenical councils of the church are in themselves authoritative, but are authoritative insofar as they point back to the apostolic tradition, the presence of a rival tradition in the church is really important. And if the Persian church, which again I'll talk about in a second, and the people promoting this sort of idea that that Nicaea rejected enforced clerical continence, if there is this broad argument against enforced clerical celibacy among patristic writers themselves that shows that the early church's tradition does not necessarily point back to the church's reception of the apostolic tradition, mm -hmm. um, which I think is necessary for theological uh, authority. Yeah. You want to tell us about Persia? Yeah, so Persia. Um, there's all sorts of divides in the church among geographic and linguistic um, boundaries. And one of the big boundaries is between the um, Eastern churches and the Western churches, beginning maybe maybe third, maybe fourth century, depending on when you date some of the early Persian Christian sources and whether you believe they're original or not, but that's sort of beyond the point. Uh, the Persian church explicitly uh, rejected the idea that all clergy um, had to either be unmarried um, or celibate married. They enforced what would now be common among maybe Anglican or any sort of Protestant churches that it's totally fine for a, a priest or whatever to be married and to continue to be sexually active after marriage and continue to have kids. And so this was decided by the Persian church in the 5th century at a couple of, again, regional um, but still important councils. There is in 486 the Council of Mar Akakius, um, and in 484 the Council of Bet Lafath. They explicitly uh, rejected the idea that priests cannot be married. And so in the Eastern tradition, something different is being pushed than in the mainstream of the West. And of course, the mainstream of the West does seem to be priests cannot be married. At least in this early area, or early era, it gets a bit more complex as we go on. All right. So that gets us through the early to mid fourth century. Um, well, no, it doesn't because we still have Eusebius of Caesarea, who yep. was present at the Council of Nicaea wrote, uh, he, you know, he's our great church historian, wrote about his experience at Nicaea. Uh, he says, it is fitting that those in the priesthood and occupied in the service of God should abstain after ordination from the intercourse of marriage. So whatever happened at Nicaea, Eusebius would have been one of those in favor of priestly celibacy. It's clear from that statement. And um, before moving away from the very early period, um, Maybe this is a good time to ask why the early church was sort of debating this issue. And this will have resonances later on. Um, but one of the things that I found especially important in the early period was a debate over how much to apply the sort of Levitical understanding of priests. Because, of course, in the Old Testament, a priest um, is expected to marry and have kids and that's just assumed um, and and those kids will take on the priestly duties after them right like it was a um it was what it would become later like priests 
functioning as a sort of guild, um, a sort of shop that you, a trade that you pass on to your kids. Hmm. And so there was a debate early on um, about whether or not this is good evidence that the people enforcing clerical celibacy are wrong and that priests can actually be married. There are a few different sort of ways this was argued. Um, On the one hand, Ambrose rejected the idea that Leviticus gave good grounds for ordaining married priests and allowing married priests to be sexually active. And he called those people who argued for priestly non-celibacy Judaizers. He said that you follow the Old Testament too closely, you follow Leviticus too closely, and you are, uh, you should recognize that the New Testament, um, the religion of Jesus far surpasses the Old Testament, so the restrictions have to be stricter, which is maybe the opposite of how we think about the New Testament today. Well, I was just thinking about its interesting use of the word Judaizer because in the New Testament we would typically see Judaizer as like those are the people who are giving us too many rules that we don't have to follow. Yeah. But Ambrose is saying, no, this is a rule you have to follow, and only a Judaizer would say you don't have to follow this rule. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting. interesting flip of how that that term is used against the other side. Yeah. The other side used at Leviticus, but not in the way that you might be expecting. Um, and so they didn't just say Leviticus has married priests, therefore it's okay for married priests to be married and father children or whatever. They did say that, but they said, if you look at the Levitical laws, it actually imposes some cultic regulations and some purity regulations on how priests can practice uh, their sexuality. And so a decision was made among some uh, that priests uh, could be sexually active, but had to Uh, abstain from sexual activity either one or three um, depending on who you're talking to days uh, before performing the Eucharist and at periods uh, uh, periods of the church's great fasts so Lent and whatnot but there was this idea that according to Leviticus according to the Bible of the church sexual activity makes someone ritually impure not necessarily in sin but ritually impure and you can't approach uh, the divine temple, you can't approach the cult and do cultic activities if you're ritually impure. And so priests following in this Levitical model would be expected to uh, fast from sexuality, maybe sort of in the way that Paul describes. This has some other resonances that we'll talk about later. Abstaining from sexual activity for the purpose of prayer. What's the most important prayer? The Eucharist. Well, it's interesting you bring up you said it doesn't make you, it makes you ritually impure, not necessarily morally, but we were talking about earlier, the sin offering was the offering for, you know, if you, uh, if you have, definitely if you have a child, um, if you're impure from having a child, if you're impure from leprosy, I am still, I mean, everybody knows the sort of classic argument about Leviticus Uh, Ritual impurity is not necessarily moral impurity. That's sort of the standard opinion. I don't know. Like, it's... uh, I'm comfortable with that, but the more I read Leviticus, they offer atonement offerings. They use the word to atone, which is, you know, kippar, the Yom Kippur, that day, uh, that word, to talk about cleansing from ritual impurity. Hmm. And so I'm not a Hebrew Bible scholar. This is just something that's been rolling around in my mind. But I think it might have implications for how uh, the patristic writers thought about this. This is something that I don't know has been explored. Mm-hmm. But I also haven't looked very hard for that particular question in scholarship. Yeah. And connected to that, connected to this argument from the Old Testament to say that we can, that priests can engage in sexual activity with their spouse, Pope Sericius, if I'm probably not saying that right, but who cares? He's dead. Um... <laughs> He says, and this is in uh, 385, so this is still very early, we're still in the 4th century, and he says, We have indeed discovered that many priests and deacons of Christ brought children into the world, either through union with their wives or through shameful intercourse, that is like probably adultery or fornication, something like that. And they used as an excuse the fact that in the Old Testament, as we can read, priests and ministers were permitted to beget children. And this is in, uh, this is the same pope who explicitly denounces uh, priestly sexual activity. He is 
the one of if not the earliest pope to kind of use the papal decree authority or formula um, from what I understand so that's a big deal that a pope is issuing this kind of statement now you can listen to Gerhard's episode on the development of the papacy to see kind of what papal authority meant in this era um, at least from the perspective of a Protestant take that for what it's worth um, but uh, Pope Damasus, which is another pope who very shortly after this also decreed that priestly sexual activity was not acceptable. So this is all to say we have arguments for and against priestly celibacy. The documentation that we have is overwhelmingly for priestly celibacy. And this is from very early, which is not what I expected to find when I when we started researching this. But but the counter examples I think are also really important. Mm-hmm. If it's mostly in favor of priestly celibacy, that doesn't override the fact that it's not it's not unified or any or even approaching unity in the way that some other things were unified. Uh, the church was unified on. So the church never questioned. Uh, married sexuality, like whether or not um, you could have sex without being married. The mm-hmm. church never questions this until recently. The church doesn't really uh, debate the rise of bishops um, in ecclesiastical orders after that starts to develop in you know the second century moving on. There were multiple different ways of organizing the church, but once the bishop model um, was incorporated, that seems to have taken on a something approaching unity and like uniformity. Uh, This has important sources and even whole segments of the church that reject the idea of enforced clerical celibacy. And so while, especially in the West, this is the main opinion, um, and we do want to be honest about that, it is not the only opinion. And so the reformers who would champion the idea of clerical marriage were not total innovators. They were drawing on something that was deeply embedded and infused in the tradition. And this, specifically with the fact that the church in Persia was one of the main detractors from this, that brings up an interesting question about kind of the east-west divide that's, that's always debated and brought up about kind of the way that the church develops in the different regions of the world. Garrett and I were talking before we started recording that we both buy into the idea that there was a distinction between these two groups. How much of that, how distinct they were is debatable on any given subject, but there were differences. And I wonder, this is me just speculating, how much of this has to do with the presence of Neoplatonism within the early church that the Western uh, Greek and Latin-speaking church really latched on to the idea of priestly celibacy, and then the Eastern Persian church didn't didn't seem to have this, you know, as an issue for them. That's not to say that importing philosophy into theology is bad. I'm all for it. I mean, if we didn't have if we didn't have Neoplatonism in the church, we wouldn't have Pseudo Dionysius, and he's one of my favorite, you know, early church fathers. It's inevitable and unavoidable that we're going to import our philosophy into the way that we think through theology. That's fine. But I think the early church was very infused with Neoplatonic thinking, which had a view of the body, which was more of an escapist kind of view that, you know, to deny your body its pleasures and even its needs was a higher way to live. It's an easy step in my mind that the church would have taken to go from kind of that infused Neoplatonism within the society to injecting that on the people in the church who are supposed to be the most pious, uh, the examples for everyone. If everyone in society thought celibacy and abstinence and asceticism were the prime way to live, it makes sense that they would enforce that on the spiritual leaders of the community. So... That's my speculation.
so the question of clerical celibacy and how we think about it and how we look at the past of uh, people's opinions on it has some pretty important shifts once you turn from the um, patristic era to the early and high medieval era and of course as you turn from the late medieval era to the reformation era and this high medieval era is sort of the focal point of the issue it's, it's maybe convenient that it happens at right at the midpoint between the patristic era and now right and um, happens just about a thousand years ago and there was a thousand years of church history before that but you can't talk about patristic notions of clerical celibacy without at least having in mind what's happening in the medieval church when the when the idea of priestly celibacy is starts to fully infuse its way through the Catholic Church and becomes the unquestioned assumption of the church. Now, you might, uh, from our previous discussion, assume that the transition from the patristic era to the medieval era was relatively gentle on this issue because there were there was a over, there was a large majority of voices in the West saying that priests should all be celibate, and that is what ends up becoming the decision. But it surprisingly doesn't is not an easy transition. So after either the fall or the transformation, however you want to talk about it, of the Roman Empire, there's a sort of power vacuum in the West, and a lot of the social structures. Uh, that people relied, relied on were either removed or transformed, depending on how you want to talk about it. But one thing that's unquestioned is that Christianity goes through a massive series of changes. So it moves from say, maybe the metropolitan, philosophically informed theology of figures like Augustine and Pseudo-Dionysius and Ambrose, uh, these sort of rhetorical, philosophical figures among the like rich and powerful and well-civilized elite of society and begins to infuse the European countryside. It moves into Germany and uh, what would become France and all these sort of more rural, more backwater areas of the world. Because remember at this point, Italy and um, what would become the Muslim world, sort of the Greek world, uh, were the high points of civilization in everything north and west and to some degree east, was a uh, cultural backwater and full of barbarians. And so as Christianity moves to these countrysides, to places like Germany and France and England, it begins to be informed by local customs and take on individual characters in each places, and has to interact with pagan ideas. And so you see a really broad scale changes in the way Christianity functions approaching the high middle ages approaching the year thousand uh, and some hundred years before that and after now one of the things that from our previous discussion might be surprising is that uh, married priests were just the assumption in the medieval church they uh, most churches um, as far as we can tell and this is sort of the reigning theory and scholarship uh, most priests and most churches functioned basically as a trade guild uh, where a father was a priest and the father was expected to be married and have sons and pass uh, the priesthood on to his sons. He would receive his clerical training from his father. So he would learn the ability to say the mass, learn some maybe functional Latin if he's lucky, and learn how to officiate in the church from his father. And this would have been scandalous to a lot of the figures in the patristic era, but it was just assumed and extremely widespread um, maybe approaching the seven, eight, nine hundreds. So the high point of clerical celibacy um, and the really lasting point of clerical celibacy happens in the 11th century with Pope Gregory VII and what we call the period of the reforming popes. Now, if you listen to, um, I think it was that same episode, I described this as really the time when papal authority gets off the ground. Pope Gregory VII, even more than the Pope uh, that Tyler described earlier, made himself into a sort of fiat authority figure. He issued the what's called the Decretals, which is a list of 
a number of statements in the like 30s, I think, of things that he just personally decided on for the ethical for the ethical life of the church, and he expected that to be received across the universal church as just law. Uh, what the Pope says is by definition, what Peter and therefore Christ say, because he is the successor of the apostles. This is when you have the rise of really strong papal authority. Now, one of the scholars I was reading for this article and that I'd, or reading for this uh, episode and who I'd read in the past, uh, made the argument that Pope Gregory VII did promote papal authority and a really extreme version of papal authority, but he did so for the purpose of combating clerical marriage. So he believed that being a priest who is married uh, defiles the sacraments. To be sexually active, like a lot of the earlier writers were saying, uh, makes you cultically impure, and so that defiles the Eucharist. And so in order to have a pure and holy Eucharist, um, you needed priests who were celibate. And so responding to that emergency situation of the sacrament of Christ being defiled all around the world, Pope Gregory maybe takes to himself some executive, emergency executive powers, puts the church under martial law. A sort of complementary problem that was happening. So on the one hand, you have the problems with ritual impurity and the sacraments. A complementary problem is uh, something we call eigenkirchentum, which is like, personal possession of church properties. And so this is a logical outworking of the father-to-son priesthood dynamic. Just like maybe a farmer would have his own, like he would pass the means of farming down to his sons. So priests would pass the uh, means of priesting down to their sons. And this presented a number of problems because it's not necessarily um, well-trained people who are getting the church uh, positions. It's not necessarily under the church, like the broader ecumenical church's direct oversight, like it could have been if it's if each parish is being filled by a centralized authority. And so um, on the one hand, you have the accumulation of church properties by specific families. And on the other hand, you have the defilement of the, uh, of the Eucharist. And those were both seen as um, really important problems. And so Gregory began to enforce uh, clerical celibacy all around the world. And this uh, develops through councils um, moving forward. And it develops in expected ways with this just becoming more and more accepted across the world, um, moving and pushing into the Reformation era. And once we get to the Reformation era, of course, you see a collapse of this idea, at least among the Protestants. And one of their big things is pushing for clerical marriage. And so Zwingli gets married in 1522, Luther is married in 1525, Calvin gets married in 1539, and uh, Thomas Cranmer, who was married, was made Archbishop of Canterbury in 1533. Like there is, um, it. one of the things it means to be Protestant is to allow priests, or with whatever other words they're called, to be married. that's sort of like looking forward, there's um, some interesting questions in scholarship which I referenced earlier in the podcast about like how to understand uh, the way medieval people thought about gender of uh, religious, and that just means people in religious orders. So on the one hand you've got priests and monks, on the other hand you've got nuns. So. The basic question is if we should think of medieval people as understanding gender um, in a sort of fluid way, maybe like we would think of today, or in a trichotomous way. So on the one hand, it was very well recognized back in the day, and we can recognize today, that medieval people thought of parenting, uh, being a father, being a husband, as essential to maleness. Um, And they thought of war and fighting as essential to maleness. And there were all these sorts of categories of maleness 
and that priests, by definition, could not engage in, at least once you get the rise of clerical celibacy. So how do medieval people think about these males who cannot be male? Um, so on the one hand, you've got people who say, well, look, gender was fluid back then, just like it is today. Just because you have a penis does not mean you have to engage in all the traditionally male activities in order to be considered a full person. And so there's that perspective. There's another perspective which I think is really interesting, uh, both historically and for its implications, of thinking about religious as a third gender, a third type of person. Um, and so once you enter the priest, you're sort of no longer considered male, or once you become a nun, you're no longer considered female. Um, you're considered this third thing, which is religious. And so men religious would take on maybe they would lose some of their maleness and draw on femaleness. And the women uh, would very clearly take on male properties and lose some of their uh, femaleness. Now there's debate among scholars about which one of these is the more accurate um, and which one of these best represents the medieval self-understanding. And I think there's obviously problems with both, but that is a discussion that's being had. What are some examples of losing femaleness and taking on maleness and vice versa? Like concrete ways that they would do that. Yeah, so um, one of the ways that nuns would often, uh, and this is maybe a thing that happens through all of church history, um, is women would take on masculinity in order to engage in their spiritual life. And you see this as early as uh, the martyrdom of um, Perpetua. Perpetua, that's right. I, was, I kept thinking Thecla. Thecla. Yeah, uh, Perpetua loses her femaleness in a vision, in a literal way, and be literally becomes a man in her vision. Um, and this happens through all of sort of women who are in religious orders history. Um, and so a friend and colleague of mine uh, just finished a paper on whether, like, about women describing themselves and being described as knights, uh, which is a purely male class if they are in religious orders. And then uh, men, it's less common to have men uh, taking on femininity, but I mean, that's sort of an element. What's more common is uh, men reinterpreting masculinity in non-masculine ways. And so men no longer go out to war, they practice the spiritual warfare of prayer. Men no longer fathering families, they are fathering the spiritual family of the church, that sort of thing. And so depending on where you're looking, maybe the evidence is better one way or the other. Um, and sort of, if you're looking at men, it seems more fluid, but still understood along male-female lines, just how that's understood is more fluid. If you're looking at women, women are often explicitly said to no longer be women, though that doesn't mean they can go marry women, right? So there has to be this third category. Mm. Like the, oh, the words in Greek and Latin for like be courageous are be a man. Um, and those, that's said to women with gendered implications in a lot of these texts. Okay, so Gerhard, you've talked to me about your evolving uh, thoughts on infant baptism and how you're coming to, you know, you've been Baptist for forever and you've believed in the true baptism, <laughs> believer's baptism. Yeah, the only the only baptism, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you've been evolving toward accepting and, and believing in the the goodness and validity of infant baptism. Sure. And one of the big reasons that you've expressed to me is the early church, is the, the witness of the early church seems to be pretty strong on this. Mm -hmm. um, and that carries a lot of weight because they're reflecting on the apostolic witness. Um, mm -hmm. So what about this witness of priestly celibacy being, you know, we have strong documented evidence of the church affirming priestly celibacy. So why do you remain in the Protestant position of of accepting priestly marriage and sexual activity? Yeah. I do want to say, like, I was evolving a while back. I'm, you know, done. I, that's sort of what I think now. He's, uh, he's an apostate. Yeah, yes. um, I've moved from the church. It's been a little <laughs> while I've been an apostate. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a good and important question. I have reflected on issues re related to this and like this a lot, um, obviously based on sort of my presuppositions about the way 
uh, church authority works and the relative authority of church tradition and especially the patristic tradition. And one of the things that I think is important is uh, to keep sort of the, I mean, at heart, I'm like a reformed person um, and always have been and so the primacy since of, he was born since i was born since i was he's been a calvinist not since he was baptized born. as a born yeah <laughs> uh one of the things i think is important to remember here is that we we can still be protestants and talk about uh, the authority of the church and use church authority or use church history um, in a really authoritative way so that church authority can be a window into and can explicate what is present in the apostolic mind, whether that means uh, what the apostles explicitly wrote, whether that means the texts that were also considered uh, having some apostolic authority, or whether that means uh, the church's original apostolic deposit in like Paul's literal with his voice preaching to churches, which the churches remembered and uh, sort of canonized in the rule of faith and the succession of bishops and things like this. We talk a lot about our view of scripture and the authority of scripture and the authority of the early church in earlier episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I did an episode on the authority of scripture uh, and we talk about it in various episodes. So uh, if you want to know kind of more about what Gerhard's discussing here, uh, just go binge the rest of our podcast. Yeah, and Tyler, didn't you write an article about this for the Augustinian? Um, I'm 100% sure you did, actually. I know I wrote an article about this. I don't know if we posted it to the Augustinian. It, yeah, it's called uh, Is the Biblical Canon Closed by yeah. Tyler. Um, you can find it on theaugustinian.com. The Augustinian is our... <laughs> <laughs> is it a plug now we're going to plug. Yeah, yeah. Now we're just breaking Have into to, yeah, it. yeah, sure. Uh, the Augustinian is a group effort by myself and Gerhard and uh, Gerhard's partner on the Reformation podcast, Jake Robbie, where we do some bloggy stuff and write and we have got, a, you know, these podcasts are a, a part of that. So go read articles that we write on the Augustinian. So back to it. Yes. Uh, so what that doesn't what that doesn't automatically do is say that everything that the church has said in the past is authoritative. It's authoritative if and when it legitimately points us back and is a window into the apostolic tradition. And so the difference between this and infant baptism, I think, is pretty clear from the New Testament, at least on my reading, which is sort of now a high church Protestant reading, that you have debatably, but Tyler's going to disagree with this, but you have infant baptism in the New Testament. Um, you at least have what could be considered infant baptisms in the New Testament. Um, you definitely have households being baptized. Uh, what you don't have is anything approaching a call for clerical celibacy. In fact, um, I think that I'd just take the traditional reading of Paul in 1 Corinthians that chastity, or not chastity because that's a good word always, but uh, continence within marriage. Continence just meaning abstinence from sex yeah. within the marriage. Yeah, abstinence yeah. within marriage as a life choice is a betrayal of marriage vows. Um, mm. I think that's what Paul says. He says you can abstain for a time with mutual consent. For a time doesn't mean forever. Um, and so if you're going to allow married priests but forever isn't long at all christopher robin <laughs> like and that doesn't mean you know this can be used in abusive ways to it doesn't mean you know have sex all the time um, but what it does say is don't i mean it says don't be celibate married people right like and this is a this was an evolving discussion along with the rise of clerical celibacy what do you do with married priests well you don't ask them to divorce but also um like the like all Catholics are happy to point out, people like Peter were married um, and presumably on the words of Paul were still sexually active. Uh, Tyler, there was a passage that you mentioned earlier about Peter. Oh, yeah. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, which is very early. Is he the, the Clement that was um, discipled by one of the apostles? Yeah, I forget which, but uh, he was. 
John, I want to say, but I'm not positive. Yeah, it's one of them. Anyway, uh, he he writes in his stramata that Philip and Peter both begat children. Uh, Peter's wife uh, apparently suffered martyrdom from the tradition that we get from Clement. So, yeah. um, I've heard someone mention that the, that the terminology might not be a wife. Uh, or uh, it might not be mother-in-law. It might just be, you know, there's a lot of people in people's households in that kind of pa- uh, patriarchal society. A household can include a lot of different people. Clement of Alexandria is pretty clear that this was Peter's wife, and he had children, as did Philip. And I think a lot of Catholics even say yeah. that that's true. It just happened before the ordination. And then there's that... Uh, I read one argument from a Catholic writer who who mentions that uh, that statement in Luke, I forget who's saying it, about, you know, leaving your wife and children. It's Jesus who says, yeah, leave yeah. your wife and um, families to follow me. And according to some Catholic writers, that's exactly what the apostles did. They had wives. They, from the time that they, you know, accepted the apostolic call, they uh, left that, um, at least sexually. Yeah. Which, I mean, again, like, I, I guess that's fine, a fine argument within those texts. But, I mean, Paul is just, I think, kind of the sticking point against this. And uh, he even says, also in First Corinthians, that when he's arguing for the, like, for the rights of the apostles, or the rights of an apostle is how it's often subtitled in English Bibles, he says, do I not have a right to take a wife, or a sister as a wife, meaning a fellow Christian as a wife, as do, does he mention James? As do James and the rest of the apostles? I don't uh, He at least says, as do the rest of the apostles. So Paul says the other apostles were mm-hmm. married. Um, and Paul also says in that same letter that if you're married, you have to, you morally have to uh, continue to have sex in some way. Um, and you have to have uh, mutual consent on that. And again, that's uh, that could be read in an oppressive way, but the way Paul sets it up, he's trying to set it up in a non an anti-oppressive way yeah um, and mutual consent is kind of a, a key yeah you know. um which is an interesting point that you brought up earlier when we were before we started recording is there was a papal decree or, or something along those lines about uh, if a if a married man is pursuing yeah. priesthood uh, the wife gets veto power on that. Yeah. Uh, so because it would entail celibacy afterward. Right. In 1322, Pope John the 22nd. There's a ton of those Johns. <laughs> uh, he. Um, I'm just gonna read a quote from a source. This is a uh, a Catholic scholar. This is from the Vatican website, but it's an article that he had written. Quote. In 1322, Pope John XXII insisted that no one bound in marriage, even if unconsummated, could be ordained unless there was full knowledge of the requirements of church law. If the free consent of the wife had not been obtained, the husband, even if already ordained, was to be reunited with his wife, exercise of his ministry being barred. And so this is, I think, an interesting, like, the rights of women are being protected in the church. It's not, um, it's not as, it's not as oppressively patriarchal as it's often presented as Mm. and this is a a community whose whole ordained purpose whether divine or human whether you believe it or not uh, is for people is Mm -hmm. for the betterment of human society and human flourishing but i mean like sort of the distinction between that you can't just because it is in the church tradition doesn't make it automatically authoritative what what's authoritative is the apostolic deposit that the church protects mm-hmm. and an argument from scripture trumps the decisions of the church later if there is no word in scripture i think the patristic authority has to be taken extremely highly mm-hmm. and at least listened to probably obeyed uh, but depending on the issue uh, but when it comes to something that the apostles already decided on, I don't find uh, the church's later decisions all that important. And that's what sola scriptura means. Right. And this is very, very unrelated, but I think it's important that sola scriptura doesn't mean I don't need anything except for the Bible. There are Protestants who think that, and there are Catholics who think that Protestants think that. (laughs) So when we talk about sola scriptura... And we're actually being historically accurate and faithful to that tradition. Sola Scriptura is about scriptures 
trump everything else. So I would say, you know, for instance, I'm not uh, convinced on the the model of bishops and presbyters, um, even within Baptist churches, which are, you know, the lowest among the lowest of low church traditions. Like I would say that the New Testament has a model uh, or an assumed structure that I think we should try to get back to that w- that is l- much less hierarchical than even Baptist structures. Hmm. So like I would say this whole question of clerical celibacy is basically a moot point to me because I don't think that the office of pastor is anything like what we assume it to be when we think about that question. So that's why I specifically asked you your thoughts because sure. you, you know, you're comfortable with the, the structure as sure. it's handed yeah. down. I mean, I believe in bishops and Tyler's extreme free church like yeah it's kind of fun yeah uh an interesting valence in how to think of sola scriptura in this historically focused and minded way in this patristic sensibility way and it struck me a few maybe weeks ago that this uh the way that tyler and i talk about patristic authority is sort of like the way um the reformer heinrich bullinger from he was one of the Original. Oh yeah, old Bullinger. Yeah, <laughs> he's I one of the 16th him. century. Haven't reformers. heard that name in years. <laughs> uh, he's an important uh, 16th century uh, theologian um, who, if you are familiar at all with Reformation studies, you'll know. I'm not familiar, so that's why I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, Heinrich Bullinger uh, said, uh, and this has become a catchphrase in Reformed uh, circles for since ever since the 16th century. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean that what your um, what your probably pastor in these circles uh, says is automatically authoritative, um, but it says that the the sermon acquires some measure of divine authority from the fact that it is an expl- explication of Scripture. And that's how I think it's a good reformed way to think about the authority of the early church is that uh, the preaching of the early church. Um, is the word of God in the same in the same way that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God, and like basically what Bart said, right? Carl Bart. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Preaching Bart. is the word is spoken. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the ways in which he's really reformed is that he has his like concentric circles of the yeah. word of God. Yeah, and and he's drawing on this passage from Bullinger, and so that like in the same way that a sermon is not automatically authoritative, but it carries it should carry within it the authoritative word of God and therefore can be talked about as authoritative. Um, In the same way, the early church is not automatically authoritative, but it carries within it the deposit of the apostles. And insofar as it does so, it is actually authoritative. Well, I think that wraps up our episode on priestly celibacy. It would be helpful to us if you enjoy the podcast, um, if you want it to continue, because uh, continuing relies on support either through sharing, uh, not yet through money, because we don't have a apparatus for that. Um, but if you do like the podcast and you want to continue, um, subscribe. If, if you haven't and you liked this episode, um, if you rate and review, review us on iTunes, that would be really helpful. If you follow us on Twitter, uh, podpatristica, and if you maybe retweet the episode... If you would help us out in just sort of spreading the knowledge that this podcast is available, it would help us. And then other people who it could be helped by would know that it exists because we're not going to spend money advertising it since we don't make any money from it. But uh, check out Pod Patristica on Twitter. You could check out our other podcasts, the Reformation podcast, that's at RefPod on Twitter. I started a new solo project and Tyler joined me in this last episode, uh, The Cultural Revolution Read-Along. Um, which is a political podcast, not necessarily a religious one, but we're both deeply religious people, so it comes to that a lot, at Pod on Twitter. Um, and then check out The Augustinian, theaugustinian.com, uh, where we do our writing. Any other plugs? Any other uh, CTAs? I got nothing. I guess we have some listeners, I know, who are celibate or are pursuing different forms of ministry, whether it be as a nun or as a priest uh, in a tradition that is celibate. Uh, Share your stories. We love hearing from you and about your life and about different traditions that we are not a part of. So uh, feel free to 
start a conversation on Twitter with us and teach us about the traditions that we're all trying to be faithful within. As always, farewell children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen. <laughs>